when I came into ministry in 1980, 81, thereabouts, uh, I stepped into a world that I was not familiar with. I'd grown up in church. I'd been around all the church stuff all my life, but uh, to move into the ministerial side of church work was kind of a uh, fresh thing for me. And one of the things that I encountered immediately was what, uh, what came to be known as the church growth movement. And so in my college studies and later in seminary studies, I was, uh, well, I want to say assaulted with, not sure if that's quite the right term, but it uh, at least fits a little bit, uh, with this idea that the church, if it's going to be what it's supposed to be, needs to market itself in a community. And so they had all kinds of strategies for that. And I remember a particular class in seminary where they were teaching us about the marketing strategies of a church. And, uh, you know, the problem with that kind of stuff is nobody's really smart enough to be totally wrong about something. And so there's an element of truth in it, but yet there are certain theological realities that really caused me some trouble with that back then and even today. Um, but what I've found through the years is that's been one of these ongoing realities for churches. And we find ways to promote ourselves to people who are not actively attending the church. And so you'll find churches uh, who have TV networks to do that. And you'll find churches who do television programming to do that, or television commercials to do that, or billboards, or you, you get the drift, right? And as I said, the problem with that is that it's not all wrong, but it's not all right either. And so somewhere we've got as a church to figure out where we settle into that. Which brings me to one of the modern kind of presentations of that same basic idea. And that is this phrase that we hear regularly. I like it, to be honest with you. Uh, I've even used it and probably will continue to use this phrase. Make him, that is Jesus, famous. I want us to think about that this morning. And especially I want us to think about what we mean by that when we use the phrase and how we should accomplish that. Take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 1. And as we look in this now, the next step of Luke's gospel, the end of chapter 1 is finally in sight. By September the 1st, we're going to be into chapter 2. But we're not there yet. As a matter of fact, the passage we're looking at today, as far as I know, I've never heard a sermon from this passage. Which at least ought to let you know that I'm not stealing somebody else's sermon this morning, Okay. But as we come to this passage, it's actually the birth narrative for John the Baptist. And as we come to it, there's several things I want us to see. The first major point, I'm just going to kind of mention it for the interest of time and move on to the heart of what I'm saying. Here's what I'm driving this morning. I want to know whose job is it? Usually when I hear that in church, it's because either somebody's mad because somebody else is getting on their territory or somebody's saying, it's not my job. I don't know whose it is, but it's not mine. Let's take the phrase, making him famous, and I'll ask you again, whose job is that, really? How do we go about making Jesus famous. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57, reads this way. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, 
and she bore a son. Now that's no surprise if you've been working your way through chapter 1 with us. We knew this was coming. It's not like some great news flash for us, but it was for her neighbors. So in the next verse we read, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Let me just stop for a second and remind you, when Elizabeth got the word about this pregnancy, it, um, her husband actually is the one who got it first from an angel. You remember all of that? And so for nine months now, he's been sitting on that information. These people around her now, because she's past the age of childbearing, she's clued in, or they are now clued in that God's done something in her life. And the key verse for us in the very early part, verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. This is the part I'm just going to mention. It's really, I used a kind of, in the first service, I spent some time here. I'm just going to mention it here. One of the things we need to do as God's people, as storytellers, the ones who go out into the community and tell the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to learn how to celebrate. Okay? So many Baptist people are, they look like they live at one of these porcelain doll factories and all they know how to produce is sad faces. God's people ought to be able to rejoice. When God shows himself to be real and to be active, it's cause for a party. Amen. Let's party. Now, that doesn't mean nearly what it did years ago for me. It's still a good phrase. You know, uh, I've been here now into my third year, and I'm, I'm beginning to lose. Some of these conversations are getting fuzzy for me. But some of the early conversations I had, one of them was with one of our deacons and talking about baptism. People come to know the Lord. Baptisms ought to be a party for us. Don't you think? When a baby's born, we celebrate that birth. My brother called me this week. He got a brand-new grandbaby this week. He's not nearly as good-looking as my grandbaby is, I can just tell you. Okay? And he's not nearly as smart as my grandbaby is. But my brother's happy about it. Good for you. We celebrate when babies are born. We celebrate when spiritual babies are born. Let's get happy. Okay. I expected that response, so I'm going to go on to the real part of this message today. All right. So we pick up in verse 69, or 59, excuse me, and as we move forward now, in these next handful of verses, there's two primary truths that just jump off the page for us, and I'm going to spend a little time with them. So in verse 59, here's what we read, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet because, remember, he was struck dumb. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered at that. Now, I'm going to stop reading there for a few moments. Let's look at these two truths that jump off the page for us. Here's the first one I want you to get. Everybody has an opinion as it relates to how you live out your Christian life. Everybody has something they'd like for you to hear about the way they think you ought to live your Christian life. Did you catch that in this passage? Now let's come back to it. Let me give you a little bit of the background on what's going on here. 
Zechariah is a priest. You remember that? His wife is, let's see if you're alive this morning. Who's his wife? Elizabeth, all right? Zechariah is the priest. Elizabeth is his wife. Both of them are from the priestly tribe. And so both of them have this long heritage of being the ones who serve at the temple under the name of Judaism and religion. When he finds himself, Zechariah that is, in that most, or in the holy place, and Gabriel visits him and says, you're going to have a son, all that kind of stuff. We find that whole process now coming to a head in the birth of this guy, this baby that he and his wife will name John. But the passage emphasizes for us that that was not okay with the church people. Now, we're going to call them church people. Okay, They're just the children of Israel. They're their neighbors and their friends. And in the passage as we've read it here, it says that after eight days, they come to the circumcision. Now that in itself is a message for us. Because normally in first century Jewish life, they would name the baby at birth. But that hasn't happened yet. And part of that's because he's from this uh, priestly family. And so they're going all the way back to their roots and uh, Abraham and the circumcision of his son and all that kind of stuff. And so they wait eight days and for this very formal ceremony that includes circumcision, but also includes the naming of this new baby. They show up to that, and the crowd says, we're going to do this according to custom. Let that just kind of sink in for a moment. And I want you to start thinking about the customs of 21st century Baptist life, or Crestwood Baptist life, if you will. We all have our customary Ways of behaving. For instance, you don't, good Baptists, don't drink, smoke, or dip. That's what I grew up knowing. And my mother always added, and you don't date girls who do. (laughs) The problem with that was, I found out pretty early, I wasn't a good Baptist on any of those three fronts. Like some of us aren't. But the customary way of doing it gets pushed to the front, okay? Now, that's a really simple way to talk about it. We come back to them, and in this naming ceremony, they come forward as the gathered crowd and essentially say, custom says, you must name him Zechariah. Notice that? Now... That's verse 59. Look at 60. But his mother answered, no. Did they buy that? No, they didn't buy that. Excuse me, Elizabeth says, we're not calling him Zechariah. Zechariah the Baptist doesn't sound right. We'll call him what? John. So what do the crowd do after that? Well, okay, Elizabeth has spoken. Smoken or spoken? Either one. Wow. It's lonely up here sometimes. Their friends and their neighbors who on one hand are rejoicing with them about what God has done now step in and say, tradition says. And their response to her was, That's a typical, dumb, broad statement. That's not what they say. 
But it is certainly what drives their behavior. Because as soon as she says that, they immediately turn to him to see what he has to say about it. Now, unlike today, in that society, the father really did have the last say on most things. And so what Zechariah now is going to say has the very real possibility of returning the world to balance for them and this ridiculous idea that he might be called something other than the name we're expecting can just be pushed aside as another one of those examples of a mother who was totally out of context and out of touch. And so they turn to the dad, expecting him to uphold the tradition, and he says, what? Nothing. Don't miss that. He doesn't say anything because he's still dealing with the after effects of not really believing what God was doing. So he has to call for a marker board. And he writes on it, and it's not Zechariah that he writes, but it's John. Now, we're going to talk about the effects of that in just a moment. But I don't want us to get lost at the main point of what we see so far. In this particular instance, we find this truth. Those people around us, society if you want to call it that. Our circle of friends, if you want to call them that. The reality is that other people have definite opinions about how you should live your life. And the other reality that goes with that is, much of the time, they are very willing to force that on you. Let me give you a couple of really kind of inconsequential examples of that. First of all, you recognize in an American society today that the media has very definite opinions about how you should live your life? If I say, what does the media seem to influence? I'm talking about generally speaking, because I know you can find exceptions all over the place. What is the media's position on gun control? The reality is that you don't have to look very far to see that there is a definite opinion that they have, and they are most willing to push that on you and force you to live that way. Agreed? All right, if you want to go home, we'll just go home now, okay? Let's get to lunch early. Stay with me. The media also has opinions on things like global warming. Now, what I want you to get from these things, I'm not asking what your position on them. It really doesn't matter to me because, again, I said these are kind of inconsequential. Now, I know some of you get upset. Is it gun control is not inconsequential. Yes, it is. Ultimately, God's still God whether you have a gun or not. Okay, so I get the point, all right? Don't break into my house and see whether I believe in having a gun or not. You're not going to win. But the reality is those things are not that important in the overall scheme of life. But you see, that's part of the deal. Our culture, the customary approach says these are paramount of importance, and therefore I'm going to force you, if I can, into doing what I want you to do. We have these opinions and our customs and they step up. Here's another one. Uh, 18 months ago or 18 weeks ago, I could have said the name Trayvon and most of us wouldn't have any clue what I was saying. But boy, you know today, if you watch the news at all, because the media has said, this is important to know. Now, in those inconsequential things, ultimately it's not that big of a deal. But it's not always 
inconsequential, this pressure that people get from the outside on how they should live their lives. Is it important for Zechariah and Elizabeth to stand their ground? Or would it be okay if we named this kid Zechariah instead of John? Let me give you an example of when it really matters. Because sometimes it really does matter. When it gets to spiritual matters, it's of paramount importance that we do what's right, not just what everybody else says we ought to do. You want a good example of that? You remember the event out of the Old Testament in the exodus of Israel when they get to the verge of going into the promised land. And they're camped out over there on the other side of the Jordan River. Moses pulls together these guys and he says to them, all right, we're going to send spies over there so that we can check out what's on the other side. Remember that? And so they send the spies over, these 12 guys. They come back and the spies in one collective voice say, let's do it. We're ready to go. Right? Wrong. Wrong. Okay, if you just checked in... To what I've been saying, I just told you a wrong approach to the Bible, what it says. Those 12 spies came back. Two of them said, let's do it. The other 10 said what? We can't do it. Are you crazy? There's giants over there. What did the children of Israel say? What was the position of the gathered mass of children of God there. Go or we can't go. Can't go. So the majority says, now remember, these are God's people. Let me, let me just sweeten the pot even more. These are the same God's people that God had visited in the land of Egypt and through a series of miracles delivered them out of slavery. Remember the plagues and all of that? They get out of slavery and they're on their way and God miraculously engineers their route so that they are hopelessly trapped. The sea on one side, Pharaoh's army's coming at them from the other side and God then delivers them again miraculously. The parting of the Red Sea, the children of Israel go across, the crowds, I mean the uh, water comes over on the Pharaoh's army as he's coming across, wipes them out, a tremendous miraculous military deliverance for the children of Israel. These same people, after they get through that, get over on the other side. Here's how we know they were Baptists at heart. They hadn't been across the river very long at all, and they go to Moses and say, Moses, dude, we're hungry. We got no water. We got no food. You brought us out here to die. If we'd have just stayed in Egypt, it was so much better. Hello, you were slaves in Egypt. And so what does God do? Hello, what does God do? Manna, quail, water from rocks. And so God miraculously again now provides for them. And so they continue to go through the wilderness and these wandering, this journey in a, in a land that barely sustains animal life of any kind. Millions of people are thriving out there because God is at work with them. And they make their way through a miraculous battle. 
And when they finally get to the Jordan River and they're ready to go across and they send these spies across, these people of God have a long history of God delivering them when there was no explanation except God doing it. And these spies come back and the crowd with all of that history with God says, we just can't do it. Somewhere in the wilderness, God must have died for them. Except for these two guys. They become the example for us in what we're talking about here. It seems inconsequential. This is just naming a baby. Preacher, why the big deal about this? And the answer is that God's people have a long history of refusing to listen to what God says and doing what's customary instead. Just a moment, we'll get to how that hits us as a people. But what I want to ask you before I take the next step, this is just the first of these two big truths. The question I have for you is who calls the shots in your life? When you get right down to it, do you listen to the voice of God even when it cuts across the grain of what everybody else thinks? Or do you just kind of depend on everybody else to hear God for you? And you find yourself in trouble. That's the first truth. Here's the second one. Kind of alluded to it already. The second one is God's directives always trump customary input. In other words, if God says to you, this is what I want you to do, it shouldn't matter to you what anybody else has to say. Let me tell you something. That's a little bit threatening for us. Question for you, how can Elizabeth and Zechariah take the stand that they're, that they're taking in this passage against those people who were their friends and relatives who on, just right before that were rejoicing with them? How can they possibly be so strong in their backbone that they can say, no, we're going to call him John and totally work across the grain of their traditions? And the answer is, the angel said his name is John. It comes from a very direct word, input, message, whatever you want to call it, from God himself. So here's some implications for that for us. That's the big truth. Let me play some of the implications out for us. First of all, here's one. You better be getting God's directives for your life. If what I'm saying is true, and what I'm saying is you cannot trust the overall customary, traditional voice of the people, even God's people, you need to hear from God. Now, I want to be careful with this because you can so hear from God, and I put that in quotation marks because some of the craziest, nuttiest stuff we've ever heard in history have been people saying, well, God, the voice told me to do this. I mean, if it doesn't match up with God's word, you're not hearing from God. But just because God's people say it doesn't mean it's true either. You better hear from God in your own right. It goes back to the message that I preached several weeks ago at our you know, family celebration day. The one about God speaking a direct message into your situation. He, has some, he cares about where you go to school and who you marry and that kind of thing. 
But you see, our traditions often drive what we do. And our traditions might just drive you away from God's message. Let me give you an example of that. Can you imagine God saying to somebody, I want to go witness to this person. Can you imagine God saying, no, don't do that? Our tradition says... That that's what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to take the good news of Jesus Christ to people. We're storytellers. That's the whole point of this message in the book of Luke and all that kind of stuff. And we take that stuff and we believe then that when we get ready, it must be the right time to share a witness with somebody. My mother tells a story in a situation in her life years ago where she had a burden for a particular man. His family was part of our church, but he was one of those guys. He just wasn't going to church, wasn't going to do it. Matter of fact, he had been burned at church as a little kid, and he wasn't ever going to go back. And by this time, he was in his 70s. And so she decided, and, and, and all of her stuff, God put this guy on her heart, and she started praying for him. And one day, she, the burden was so strong for him, she said, I'm going to go and I'm going to witness to this guy, try to lead him to the Lord. So she got herself ready, started getting ready, left, and about to leave the house, and God says to her, no, don't do that. Now, you see, that flies in the face of Southern Baptist evangelistic teaching. My mother knows how to listen to the Lord. She knew that was the Lord's message, so she did not go. It ate her up, but she didn't go. Didn't understand it, but she didn't go. Weeks later, same burden, still praying for this guy. She determines again, I'm going to get I'm going to go over there. I'm going to share Christ with this guy, lead him to the Lord. She gets herself ready and is about to go out, and God says, no, I told you no. Once again, flies in the face of all of our traditions and all of our teaching, And she didn't go. Later, much later, she was minding her own business, doing something totally different, and God broke through to her, and he said, you know that guy that you have a burden for? Now's the time. Drop what you're doing and go over there and share life with him. She did. Listened to what the Lord said, dropped what she was doing, went over there, sat down with him, led that man and his wife to the Lord at that moment. You gotta hear from God. It's not one of those things where you can look backwards and say, Yeah, I heard from God when I was 14 years old and I gave my life to Christ and I heard from Him so well then, I don't even have to hear from Him now. That's wrong. He's involved and he's interested in your life and you need to hear from him because the voices that you hear around you will lead you astray, even church voices, as we find in this passage. Can you imagine having to spell out Zechariah the Baptist for first grade Sunday schoolers all the time? So they operate from the revealed word of God for them. Here's why I think that's important for us. Sometimes the circle that you involve yourself with will not get it what God's teaching you. Are you a swim upstream kind of person or do you like to just go with the flow? Now, I've been here long enough. I can look around and I can see that's a swim upstream person and that's a swim. And those are the people I like to hang around with. Okay. Um, So if you're not a swim upstream kind of person, you're more a go with the flow kind of person. Let me invite you. I'll give you a little homework today because I want to help you enjoy life. Okay. 
So let me give you a message from the dark side, that side that says swim upstream every once in a while. Challenge the conventional wisdom every once in a while. Here's the deal. Are you familiar with elevator ethics? You know the ethics of an elevator? The ethics of an elevator are when you walk in to an elevator and there are people there, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to the back corner if you can. Okay, You get away from all those people, and when you get in there, what do you do? You turn around and face the door. Okay, Now, that's elevator ethics. And you're not supposed to make eye contact with anybody. You're not supposed to say anything to anybody except when they ask you what floor. By the way, they may not ask you, so then you're going to have to sum up some courage to say, I'm going to the fourth floor. But don't say anything else. Okay, That's elevator ethics. Let me help you swim upstream. Okay, now most of the elevators I go to are at the hospital. So here's one of the things you can do. Walk into the elevator, and instead of going to the back corner, just stand there and face everybody. <laughs> and find one person and just stare at them in the eye. Just look them right in the eyes. Now, I'm tell you, they're going to call security on you before it's over with because you're violating elevator ethics. You really want to have fun with them. When you get in there and the doors close and you're facing all of them, say this. Let's all sing a song together today. <laughs> They're going to think you're nuts. See, our society, that, that is a real kind of simple way. I love doing that kind of stuff. I don't do the singing thing, okay? But I'll go in, I don't mind standing looking at them. I talk to them. Most times in the hospital. I've had great um, ministry conversations with people. Because people are at a hospital for a reason. Either they're sick, you can usually spot them, or somebody in their family's sick. So I stand in the, in the elevator and say, are you in or is it a family member? And it's amazing what kind of responses you get from people. The opportunity to witness just because you're willing to not play the go-along-with-the-flow game for that instant. Here's where that comes in handy for us. Sometimes the church people that we surround ourselves with are so go-with-the-flow people that they'll put pressure on us to avoid doing what God's told us to do. You know when God called me and Teresa to the ministry? Well over 30 years ago now. I went to those people that I worked with. I'm telling you, there's some reprobates in there. Some of the most pagan acting people I've ever met in my life were the ones I worked with there. And I went to them and I said, look, God's called me to the ministry. I'm, I'm giving my notice for two weeks here and I'm, I'm going to sell everything and I'm going to go to college. And How are you going to pay for college? <laughs> I don't know. Well, don't you have a son? Yeah, he's three months old. He's got immune system problems and we're going to take him to the doctor all the time. I just know God's told me to do this. I'm going to do it. People I work with, the unchristian people, man, I admire that. I, I support that. I'm glad for you. I, you know, I'll be thinking of you, all those kind of things. You know where I got trouble with that decision to follow God's call in my life? You know who gave me trouble? Church people. It was some of my mentors in my life to that point who said to me, you're crazy. How are you going to pay for school? I don't know. You don't know? You're going to move? What are you going to do for a job? I don't have a job. 
You're nuts. Church people told us that. People who weren't saved could be supportive, but church people thought it's crazy. Bottom line message for the day. Don't listen to church people. <laughs> not finished. That's a comma, not a period. If they can't honor what God's told you to do. Think of those children of Israel. You know what happened with all that group of people who said, we can't go across? They all died in the wilderness. Every last one, except for the ones who said, we'll do what God told us to do. So now I'm back to the question. Settle down. Just two more minutes and I'll be done. Okay. The question of the day is, whose job is it? When we're talking about making Jesus famous, whose job is it really? Look at this passage again. I'm going to finish reading the passage here. And in this I find several different, four to be exact, things that happen because Zechariah and Elizabeth decided to do what God called them to do. So we pick up in verse 64. And it says, and immediately, this is, I'll do verse 53. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. The picture of that is Shazam. That's the picture. Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke Blessing God. This message has been incubating for nine months. This guy hadn't spoken a word since Gabriel said, you're not going to be able to say anything. That's how you'll know God's in this. So now nine months. What do you think John, I mean, Zechariah thought every time he walked in and saw the baby bump on his wife? Oh, my goodness. Look what God's doing. But he couldn't say anything. He couldn't do. So now, nine months later, he, this boy got something to say. I'll tell you something. There's a picture of that about real worship for us. When you do what God's called you to do, you will have something to say. There's a difference between saying something and having something to say. Storytellers have something to say. Verse 65. Now, let's talk about them. And fear came on all their neighbors. Why do you suppose that is? Maybe they realized that they were standing for tradition, which meant they were standing against what God had already said would happen. Maybe they knew their Jewish history well enough to know, oops, we spoke out of turn there. Fear fell on them, and all these things were talked about. I love this part. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. You know what happens? When God starts working in his people, there's a buzz that happens. If I were to ask you, what does this community have to say about Crestwood Baptist Church? Could you answer that? Could you answer it without being a little bit ashamed of what they might say? Let me tell you something. I'll take you off the hook. The real question is, what does this community have to say about God as he's active at this church? Because the buzz is not about us. It's never about us. It's not your job to make him famous. 
The reality is when his people come together and serve him and honor him and stand for what he says, regardless of what anybody else has to say, God so moves in that group of people that everybody knows what's happening. And there's a buzz that happens. And the last one, verse 66, and I like this one just as much as the last one. And all who heard them laid, up, laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him and there is an expectancy that happens when people see that God's at work in his people. There's a buzz about what he is doing and there's an expectancy about what he will do. I'll close with this. Come on up, Brian. <clears throat> In 2009, when I finished the last of my formal education, the school where I was attending uh, pushed my name out in front of a lot of different churches. I didn't ask them to, wasn't trying to leave or anything like that. They just let people know that I graduated. And so I started getting some calls from various churches. And one of them I got was from a church in this area. And uh, I'll about tell you enough that you can probably figure it out, but I'm going to leave the name off for a moment. I got a call from this church. Actually, not a call, but a letter. Eight pages of questionnaire. We want to know who you are, preacher, because you're on our short list. I didn't even know there was a list. I didn't know I was on it. I didn't want to be on it. But they sent me this questionnaire. I started reading through it. And I read something that I thought to myself, I don't want to go to that church, but I'm going to answer their question. Here's their question. Well, not so much the question as much as what was involved in the question. They wanted to know something about me and where I might stand not in where I might try to lead them as a church but where I stood in their history as a church one of the claims that they made pointed out to me that their high point of their history as a church occurred in 1870 something 1870 something Now, we're in 2013. That was in 2010, more or less. Uh, That's a long time. I don't know the math of that, but that's like more than a decade. 1870 to 2010. Their comment was that the high point of their history as a church was when General Sam Houston was a member of their church. And they wanted to know as a pastor how I would feel about that. So I wrote them back. By the way, I never heard from them after I wrote this. I wrote them back, and in my answer, I called them to task over living on a historical memory that was 100 years old. If they're going to do that, if the high point of your church history is 100 plus years ago, why don't you just shut the doors today? And just do the world a favor and stop living on a faith that is so old and so dead that you got to go back to a dead guy as your high point. See, the reality is, Church of Jesus Christ, we don't have a dead guy as a reality point for us. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is still alive, which means he still has something to say to us. We can't afford to just stand on history The history of the church, the history of this church is dead history if it's dead with us today. Jesus is still alive. History marches on 
And it's moving us to a place where he will stand. And by the way, he's already famous. Our job is to be obedient to him. And he'll make himself more famous through what he does with us. Let's pray. Let me ask you very quickly. Is this Jesus part of your life? Or have you sold out to some historical story? If you're going to be a storyteller, you have to experience the reality of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the first message that he gives. I came to give you life. If you don't have that life, right now is the time. Just pop up where you're at. Come on down front. We'll talk about it. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's where you start. Some of us made a decision to follow Christ, and then long after that, we're still living off of that decision. We're letting all kinds of other people tell us how to live the Christian life. We're not listening to the voice of the Master. So I invite you today to make that turn, to make that decision to follow him, to be a disciple of him rather than a disciple of some of his other people. Stand up and let's sing together. Father, take this time to your glory in Jesus' name.